Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. Thank you very much for coming. It is a great pleasure to have you here, and it is a great pleasure to welcome our speaker this afternoon, who, as the editor of the world's leading scientific journal, was knighted for his services to science in 1995 for, as the WAGs had it, for improving on nature. Sir John Maddox has also two weeks ago been awarded the Edward Ryan Prize for Scientific and Cultural Achievement, which is the richest and most prestigious award in Germany and Europe. Please welcome Sir John Maddox, What Remains to be Discovered. Thank you very much. Um, Too large a crowd for such a sunny afternoon, I say. I want to talk about the science in the past, in the present, and I hope in the future. I can't predict the discoveries there are going to be in the years ahead. I can tell you now the areas of our ignorance that are so glaring that they have at some point to be filled. That's what I hope to do. I should explain, I've written a book with the title of What Remains to be Discovered. It's not out yet, will be soon, I hope. Never tell with these things. If um, anyone wishes to put his name and address on a piece of paper, we'll write and let him know at some point when it's going to be published and how much it'll cost. I hope to persuade the publishers, Macmillan, for whom I've worked for 30 years, uh, that they ought to offer those who put their names on a piece of paper a discount. Macmillan is not a hot shot at discounts, I know from my experience, (laughs) but I'll do my best. We've had a marvelous century of science. Think of what's been discovered in the past hundred years. Two theories of relativity from Einstein, quantum mechanics, and more recently, the trick to understand what life is. So people are understandably excited by all the things that, with the help of social institutions of various kinds, science has put on our desks, the computers, the other gadgets, the telecommunications, the aircraft we use to travel the world. And understandably, too, there's a growing lobby of people who say, ah, but the problem with science is it's moving so fast that it outstrips the uh, capacity of our social institutions to adapt. And so there's a kind of grumble going on. Science is going too quickly. Even to the extent of saying, let's have less of it. Or in one notorious case, a book published recently, and I'm not here to promote other people's books, um, uh, science is at an end. I want to persuade you that's not true. I want to persuade you also that it would be calamitous 
if we supposed it to be the case. But let me begin at the beginning. Modern science is as old as Copernicus. He was the Polish astronomer who put the sun and not the earth at the center of the solar system. That was in 1515 when his book was published, just about the time the English believed that they had finally put an end to uh, the independence of the Welsh. Copernicus changed people's view of what the world was like, despite the printer's notice in the front of his book that readers need not take the contents very seriously. Com Copernicus was by then dead, and the printer no doubt was conscious of the strong feeling by the Inquisition that um, it was the Earth, not the Sun, that was at the center of the solar system. Uh, the next step was Galileo, who um, uh, in the early 17th century had established a quite remarkable truth about the time that James I ascended the throne of England, marking Scottish union with the United Kingdom. Um, Galileo demonstrated that uh, there is no difference between gravitational attraction and the, the kind of the force that you get when you're acceler accelerated upwards by a lift or when you're pushed back in your seat as the aircraft takes off. That was a big step, such a big step that it made possible what Newton did later in the 17th century and it also acted as a basis for Einstein's theory of relativity more than two centuries later. Then, at the beginning of the 19th century, people learned that matter was made of atoms. Of course, the idea had been in the air for a long time, but at about the time that the Napoleonic Wars were finally over, there was the uh, demonstration by Dalton in Manchester, based on a great deal of uh, work done by French scientists during the Napoleonic Wars, a demonstration that matter really consists of atoms. It's interesting that a whole century went by till the beginning of this century before people knew how big or rather small atoms are. They are exceedingly small, much smaller than anybody expected. And then between 1830 and 1870, should we say the Great Reform Bill and the Shaftesbury uh, legislation on welfare in this country, uh, electromagnetism was funded, the combination of electricity and magnetism. All these things are very recent, and as you'll see, there are lots more other things that are also very recent. They've happened within the lifetime of people still alive. So science, modern science, is very recent. The other preliminary point I want to make about it, about science in general, is that even though we have a sense now that science is something that's created by people who work in labs that we can visit, in reality, we're still asking 
the same old questions. The, one, the ones that Aristotle, two and a half thousand years ago, had the wit to ask. I might say that he asked the right questions, he usually got the wrong answers. And not his fault, perhaps. But I want to talk about science now, and let's begin then with one of Aristotle's questions, which was, how is the universe built? What's it like? The, the question was answered, kind of, in about 1929 by an American astronomer, Hubble, who'd had the good luck for several years to use the then largest telescope in California, the Mount Wilson telescope, and his conclusion was that the universe is expanding. It was a startling conclusion. Everyone was interested in this remarkable discovery. I just want to point out that 1929 is not so long ago. I was four at the time. And it seems to me that it's quite remarkable what has, on the basis of that one observation, been learned this century about the structure of the universe. And indeed, it's interesting also how Aristotle's question has been changed. People no longer ask, how is the universe built? They ask instead, how did it come into being? How did it start? And you know the answer to that question, of course. It's quite simple. Uh, it's in every newspaper pretty well every other day. The answer is, there was a big bang 10,000 million years ago or 20,000 million years ago. There suddenly came into being all the matter and all the energy that fills the universe now, the galaxies, the stars within the galaxies, the matter in between galaxies, which in some parts of the universe there is quite a lot, and all the light and the radiation and the momentum that keeps the universe expanding still. This Big Bang happened either 10,000 or 20,000 million years ago, according to which lab you work in. But it produced a tremendous amount of energy. That is the present view of how the universe began. And I wish to put it to you as gently as I can that it's a kind of fairy story. It's an allegory. It's a way of rationalizing what we know about the universe, but there are several difficulties with it. I should mention there are some advantages too. Uh, one of the inferences from the Big Bang idea, the sudden appearance of everything, um, 10 or 20,000 million years ago. One of the inferences from that scenario is that the universe should be filled with radiation. And lo and behold, in 1966, two people in America discovered such a form of radiation called the black body radiation, uh, uh, the cosmic microwave background radiation, if you wish. And um, that fits in nicely with the Big Bang. But there are two snags. First of all, nobody has ever been able to agree on what is the speed of expansion. So they've said, goodness, uh, either it's uh, such a speed that the universe began 10,000 
million years ago or at such a speed that it began 20,000 million years ago. It's one or the other. But that's an impossible situation. People keep on measuring this speed of recession of the galaxies and they keep on getting different answers. It's a bit of an embarrassment. There's a further difficulty which came to light only in 1980. That is that the Big Bang universe ought to be much less regular than it seems to be from the apparently even distribution of temperature across the face of the sky. And so um, people said, no problem, we'll fix that difficulty. Uh, they went on to assert that even before matter had appeared in the universe, while it was simply energy, there was a, a very rapid expansion, a huge expansion, uh, unimaginable unimaginably huge and uh, rapid. It took only a tiny fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a microsecond to have this expansion. And that had the effect of making everything smooth. And it had this effect too. It meant that alongside our universe there uh, must be at least several others, perhaps thousands, perhaps millions of other universes all of them with slightly different properties. That's a disconcerting view. But if, uh, uh, one thing I want to say is, if any of you hear somebody say, what about the Big Bang universe, that's how the world began, please ask him, and what do you make of these other universes then? And it's important that you can't have the Big Bang without this rather bewildering idea of all these other universes sitting out there. Well. I don't want to make it look uh, as if I'm here to attack people whom I haven't named. I don't want to name them either, that would take too long. So let me leave this as a question in your minds. Do you believe in a Big Bang if the Big Bang requires that there should be uh, many, many other universes alongside our own? And do you in fact um, accept the notion that there was this very convenient but sudden and rapid expansion of everything before time began. Called inflation it is, and it's an appropriate word, in my opinion. So what you have instead is a Big Bang. Let me move on to another question that Aristotle asked, and then come back to that. Aristotle, naturally, asked, how is matter made? And he had a simple answer. Earth, air, fire, and water. Strictly speaking, that was Plato's answer, published in a remarkable textbook, all in dialogue form, as was Plato's habit, uh, called the Timaeus. Great story, earth, air, fire, and water. Uh, Dalton, as I've explained, got a different answer, and a better one, in um, the early 19th century. By the end of the 19th century, Dalton was in trouble, because in 19... 95, people found x-rays and couldn't understand them. 1998, forgive me, in 1996, people found radioactivity, Becquerel in Paris. In 1997, uh, Thompson in Cambridge found the electron. And it quickly became apparent that uh, electrons, x-rays, radioactivity are all signs that the atom is not really 
uh, a permanent thing. And as the decades have rolled by, all of them very exciting, uh, much of the work uh, a monument to the intellectual ingenuity of its practitioners. Uh, we now know, if you look in the books and the newspapers, that matter is made of several things. But primarily two. They're called hadrons and they're called leptons. And to keep it in mind easily, hadrons are nuclear matter, leptons are electronic matter. And uh, it so happens that we've been through three or four different generations of these schemes. It's like having one of these sets of dolls, you know, Russian dolls, and first you have Yeltsin on the outside, you unscrew that case, and you get a Gorbachev, unscrew that, you get to Andropov, unscrew that, you get to Chernenko, unscrew that, you get to Brezhnev and Stalin, and eventually back, of course, to Alexander II. Well, we've been doing that for the past half century with enormous aplomb, with the structure of matter. But now people say, ah, but we're at an end, it's all finished. There are just six elementary particles of nuclear matter, hadrons, called quarks, and there are just six elementary particles of leptons called um, electrons of three kinds and neutrinos of three kinds. The, the details don't matter. The point is this. People have been so content for the past decade with what they call the standard model, that they say, all right, it's all finished. We've stopped unscrewing dolls. And then, just a few months ago, turns out from a German lab in Hamburg that the electrons aren't sadly as integral as people have been supposing. Uh, it looks as if inside electrons are something else. And it wouldn't be, uh, from many points of view, a surprise if this process of unscrewing the dolls were to continue indefinitely, or at least for a long time. But it does look as if what's called the standard model isn't quite so standard after all. We don't know, really. I'm not crying stinking fish about this. It's no scandal. It's simply in the nature of science that you're never really sure What's the truth? That's how it should be. So to come back then to the universe and all that, one of the reasons given for this very rapid inflation expansion of the universe, I told you, is that it's supposed that these particles, the quarks, turn, I turn into each other in such a dramatic and rapid way that you could start with a single particle of light and you could finish up with the whole universe. Of course, uh, the initial particle of light would have to have a lot of energy. Uh, but there are schemes in people's minds for trying to make it all work. There are other schemes. Some people say particles aren't really little dots of matter, little specks of matter. Really, they're strings. They're strings of something. And they're strings that maybe um, a, a billionth of a billionth of a centimeter long, or even shorter. And they vibrate. And they vibrate in such a way that uh, the energies of vibration correspond to the 
measured masses of the particles you can see in the laboratory. And so it's all fitting, and they make it fit. And the particular advantage of the string theory is that it might help to explain one of the outstanding puzzles in the whole of cosmology, the whole of the business of how did the universe begin. At the beginning of the universe, the matter was so tightly compressed that the whole universe was as dense as the nucleus of an atom. If you think of the heaviest, the most dense ma material you can think of, something like uranium, and if you say, okay, we'll take all the electrons away from it and just compress those things completely, you get something that weighs about 10 billion tons per cubic meter. Really, more matter than there is in the Earth in one cubic meter. And that's what the Big Bang was like. And it must have been a very extraordinary circumstance, that circumstance. And indeed, it's agreed it is. It's a circumstance when every little bit of matter had very little room to move in, and so the doctrine of quantum mechanics should apply. And it was a circumstance in which the matter was so densely concentrated that uh, Einstein's gravitational theory of uh, Einstein's relativistic theory of gravitation, the one he published in 1915, and which is generally held to be the uh, outstanding intellectual triumph of this century, um, that theory is called in question. And people can't solve the problem of how do you reconcile quantum mechanics and Einstein's theory. And they've been trying for decades, to my knowledge, without success. String theory might be a way around the problem, but nobody knows. Nevertheless, there has been a tendency among the people who work in these fields to say, look, uh, we're nearly there. Just a, one extra push, and we'll have the answer to everything. It's called the theory of everything. The, the person who talks about it most often is Stephen Hawking, sadly paralyzed in a wheelchair. In his book, Hawking said, look, a few more months, we'll be there at the theory of everything. And then he said, we shall know the mind of God. And in my opinion, given what we know about the history of science, this field, far from being one that's about to ripen to produce one of the intellectual fruits of all time, is actually in a mess, a mess that can only be resolved by a lot more work, a lot more measurement, a lot more careful exploration of the universe we're in. And by that I mean not simply we need to ask fundamental questions about the particles and all that. We need to know how the universe is constructed. The reason that these people get different answers for the speed of expansion is simply that there's no map even of the nearby bits of the universe. And to get such a map uh, it should and uh, should be one of the urgent tasks. And it'll take decades. And when we have that map, it'll be possible to answer a little less ambiguously the questions that I've mentioned. What I've tried to do by talking about that boring bit of physics is uh, to suggest to you that we're just at the beginning of trying to get grips with this huge problem of how did the physical world come into being? 
And it's understandable that the practitioners, buoyed up by their excitement with this or that new wrinkle on some old method of doing a job, are able to say, we're nearly there now, boys. But the truth is, if you look at it coolly and calmly and objectively, that the chances are just as high that we're where we were in Hubble's time 50 years ago. It wouldn't be surprising between then 1929 and now is not such a long time. I want to turn to something quite, quite different. I said that the discovery of the structure of DNA, DNA, in 1953 was one of the great achievements of this century. As you know, the work was done by two then young people at the University of Cambridge, Watson and Quick. Their names are now legends. They are both happily still alive. The importance of that discovery, and all they did, was to produce a structure of this molecule that had been known to be present in the nuclei of living cells since the turn of the century, turn of this century. Uh, they said, this is the structure. And look, it's plain from this structure that first of all, this molecule can serve as the basis for inheritance. You, you can easily see how you can make two molecules out of one because it has a nice inbuilt uh, symmetry with one molecule twisted around another so that, and they go in opposite directions, so when you untwist them and put an equal one alongside each of them, you get two identical molecules, just the kind of thing you need to explain inheritance. Wait. Um, there was another payoff, and an, another virtue in that discovery, because this same molecule of DNA acts as the recipe for directing the chemical processes that happen in every cell, every living thing. And it's from that second aspect of the discovery of DNA that all the uh, advances you read about in the newspapers have flowed. The new drugs that the biotechnology companies want to make, all that sort of thing comes about because people have learned how to exploit the recipe in the DNA for doing jobs that nature does in cells in the laboratory or in the factory. That was great. What's it tell us? Here's a question that Aristotle didn't ask. It would have seemed to him, no, uh, no doubt, too daring. He didn't ask, how did life begin on the surface of the Earth? It's been asked, though, um, since, oddly enough, the time of Charles Babbage, the, the man in the early 19th century, late 18th century, who first thought that computers would be feasible. It's been asked with increasing uh, insistence ever since, primarily by a Russian called Parin in 1924, and by about, shall we say, the 1940s. It had become quite fashionable to ask the question, how did life begin? And it's a very simple idea. At the beginning of the Earth, circumstances were very different from what they are now. At the beginning, there wasn't oxygen in the atmosphere, for sure. 
There was water vapor, there was ammonia, there was methane, nitrogen. Ammonia has nitrogen in it, of course. And a very different atmosphere, what the chemists call a reducing atmosphere. It turns oxides into something else. And the sea would have been warm, and the sea would have been full of chemicals, many of them uh, chemicals dissolved from the new rocks, themselves very hot. We know, for what it's worth, when life began on the surface of the Earth. It was between 4,000 million years ago and 3,800 million years ago, an interval of 200 million years, during which the first life appeared. Before 4,000 million years ago, like the moon, the Earth was being bombarded by meteorites. Would have been impossible for life to have started under those circumstances. 200 million years later, you can find in rocks from Australia and South Africa traces of fossils that looked like fossils of bacteria, modern bacteria. And a little later, you can find the most remarkable fossils, which puzzled people for decades until they tumble to the answer. They're called stromatolites, and they're uh, huge folded slabs of rock which have a layered structure. And the layers it's now known are the layers of bacteria that then lived on the surface of an ocean somewhere, which picked up each year a little bit of inorganic material from the surroundings, uh, formed a layer which is still recognizable in these rocks, and these ancient bacteria are a real sign of when life began. But how did it begin? We don't know. Some people say you can't answer that question because they say that was an historical accident, a one-off. It could only have happened once. When it happened, well, goodness knows what happened afterwards, more historical accidents for sure. And so what we have now and call life with its DNA and all the other complicated things that are in it wasn't a bit like the life that began. And of course that's true. One has to accept that there's no way in which you could have made a molecule of DNA by chance in the early ocean. It didn't happen by chance. Among the people who say this historical accident of how did life begin this historical accident at the beginning of life it can't be treated as a scientific problem because science deals in events that form a class. I'm quoting from Jacques Monod, one of the distinguished French uh, molecular biologists who died 10 years ago. Only events that form a class can be studied by science. Well, we're not, so, not doing so badly. There are other events that look a bit like the formation of life. If you point a radio telescope at a cloud of gas between the stars, you can find there molecules of ammonia, acetylene, acetic acid, all kinds of simple organic chemicals of the kind that you find in living things. If you look at a meteorite, Chances are one in three that it'll contain organic chemicals, those called amino acids in particular, that uh, 
are the basis of the structure of proteins. Some people say, ah, what these bits of evidence show is that the Earth was populated not by life that began on the Earth, but rather by bits and pieces of life that came from outside. Myself, I think that's an artificial way around the problem. I think it's much better to regard those extraterrestrial um, evidence that life somehow happens as um, a sign of how life might have happened on the surface of the Earth. In other words, those bits of evidence are the kind of evidence that Mono was asking for when he said science needs to study events that form a class. Be that as it may, it is not an impossible problem to find out what this historical accident was. The simplest things on the surface of the Earth now, which are not parasitic on other creatures, are bacteria. Bacteria everywhere. They're exceedingly complicated organisms, as it happens, but they're um, much simpler than people, much simpler than trees, and they are, in all kinds of ways, relics of a distant past. The way that bacteria work, uh, have so many things in common with each other, and so many common things in common with the way in which complicated organisms like ourselves function, that it's possible to see how some bits of our biochemical apparatus are relics of a distant past. Take this for an example. We all have a lot of phosphorus in us, some of it in the bones. Crucially, this molecule DNA, which I mentioned, has a backbone made of phosphorus. Phosphorus atoms strung together, tied into sugar molecules, themselves tied to other molecules, forming long, long strings with phosphorus running down the backbone. But phosphorus is rare in, uh, on the surface of the Earth. The only place you can get phosphorus easily is to go to Chile and dig up some phosphate rock or to go to one of these islands where the birds nest uh, intensively and dig up the guano, as it's called. That's full of phosphorus, too. That's where our fertil phosphorus fertilizer comes from. There's not much in the sea, not much in the general environment. What we do to preserve our stocks of phosphorus now is to eat other species, animals or plants, according to our vegetarian or other inclination. And there we are. That's where we get our phosphorus to make our DNA from. So this phosphorus that keeps us going must have been a relic of a time when phosphorus was plentiful, as it would have been in this reducing atmosphere early in the Earth's history. There are all kinds of other clues like that. It's, in my opinion, a matter of time and a huge amount of effort to understand how the earliest things became able to replicate themselves. To begin with, they would just have been a molecule or two, perhaps and how those self-replicating things learned the trick of adding a membrane to themselves to prevent the water getting in, 
and how they in due course became bacteria. But that the bacteria have been going for at least the past 3,000 million years is plain. So these self-replicating molecules I speak of would have had perhaps a thousand million years, perhaps even less, to turn themselves into bacteria. An academic question, you may say. Not a bit of it is my answer. You know that we, a lot of people, particularly in America, have an interest in finding the first inhabited planet elsewhere than in the solar system. They want to find signs of life elsewhere. Whatever you think about the way in which they're going about their business, there's no doubt that the cultural and historical and social impact of the discovery of living things elsewhere will be immense. How can we prosecute that cause if we don't know how life began on the surface of the Earth? That's one case for trying to understand how life began here. But much more important, how, if we don't know how we began, can we confidently, generation after generation, repeat this fairy story to our children that life began in a warm, deep pool somewhere on the surface of the Earth 4,000 million years ago or a bit less? I think we need to know. And to need to know is valid, and to know is not impossible, but will take time and effort. That's the origin of life is, though, academic compared with all the other things that have happened. I said that uh, the discovery of the structure of DNA was one of the most important this century. I think it's every bit as important as the discovery by Copernicus that it's the sun, not the earth, that's at the center of the solar system. But it's created a situation in the study of living things that's quite without precedent in recent times. The only possible time when there would have been such a sense of elan, of uh, excitement, of being able to do things uh, has been in quantum mechanics in the brief period between 1925 and 1930. I won't go into that, but it's absorbing how excited that was as a period in science. But now I think it's fair to say that any sensible question in biology about living things can be answered if the question is sensible and the people have enough resources. And the consequence of that is that information is accumulating about the way that cells work, about the way that we ourselves function, about the way that other animals function, about the ways in which we reproduce ourselves, that's much, much faster than it's ever been. I think it got to the point, indeed, and this is one of the things that the scientific profession is going to have to look out for. The rate of accumulation of information in biology, fuddy-duddy biology as it used to be, is now so rapid that it's not possible 
for people to uh, comprehend uh, this vast amount of information within their heads. It's not merely that there's a lot of information. The intricacy of these processes is quite astonishing. If you take DNA, I said that DNA, by its structure, suggested to Watson and Crick a method by which it could reproduce itself, replicate itself. In living cells, in all our living cells, all the cells of us, the DNA does replicate itself when the cells divide. Some cells don't divide. I want to come to that in a minute. But the ones that do produce a completely new set of DNA. But no prudent cell would take on trust the DNA it was about to endow its daughter cells with without checking first. And so in the process of cell division, there's a solemn apparatus evolved in the course of our history for checking the integrity of the newly replicated DNA, making sure it's okay before the process of cell division is completed. And sometimes, of course, when that uh, process of checking goes wrong, you get cancer. It's a frequent cause of cancer. The intricacy of that process is huge because the signals that this DNA correcting apparatus and the apparatus that looks after the division of the cell has to look, uh, uh, has to cope with. Uh, it's the following. First of all, there'll be signals from within the cell saying the DNA isn't ready yet. There'll be signals from outside the cell saying this cell is too big or this cell is too small or the environment is hostile or there's no food. We're starving. And um, those signals have to communicate themselves to this same DNA-correcting apparatus in the center of each one of our cells. The cells themselves differ enormously in their uh, size, their appearance. E. coli, the, the simple bacterium in all of our guts, has, um, uh, it's about a millionth of a meter, that's a thousandth of a millimeter across and three times that, that size in length. Nice little rounded uh, sausage-shaped thing. But it has within it, um, nearly, uh, it has within it uh, a tenth as much DNA as we ourselves. Uh, less DNA, but as many functional parts of DNA. And one way and another, it's a very sophisticated organism. It's able to make energy from sugar it takes in. It's able to move uh, in response to signals from outside. An entirely well put together organism, you might say. But other bacteria, more complicated, ones that turn sunlight into energy, for example, they're uh, much more complicated even than E. coli, this bacterium in the gut. And we, of course, as people, are more complicated still. Some nerve cells, I might say, are up to a meter long. The, the nerve cells that go from our spinal cord to the uh, uh, big toe uh, must get from the spinal cord to the big toe in one swoop. So they're a meter long, very thin, of course, the, the, the long bits, and um, thousands, hundreds, thousands of millions of cells like that in the nervous system. How is all this coordinated? 
isn't really. There's, there's no controller in the cell that tells it when to divide. It's all done by means of these signals that come from extraneous places inside and outside the cell, from other cells and so on. There are all kinds of um, influences on a cell, on a person that keeps him alive. And yet all this has been coordinated not by hard wiring, as the engineers say. It's not been built in by rigid ways of organizing a cell. It's been done just by the process of evolution, which has developed all kinds of sophisticated arrangements for doing it. I want to say this about th this extraordinarily exuberant patch of science just now. It is marvelous that it's possible to answer any sensible question by setting about the job in the right way. But the intricacy of the information and the volume of it is so great that it can't belong before the people who would understand a cell or a frog or any other organism are going to have to put this information together in the way in which physicists have done so for donkey's years. In other words, building models, mathematical models often, that are going to relate one thing to another so that you can actually see which things matter and which do not. The way things have become in the scientific literature, it's uh, a jungle. People have to acknowledge that they cannot remember whether the protein, which is called AT, uh, MAP, maybe MAP1, MAP1, you know, that sort of thing, is related to another protein called CDK or not. And uh, the thing is so intricate and so complicated that it needs new ways of tackling the importance of the prospect there now is, thanks to genetics, of being able, able to understand in great detail the way in which living processes are carried through and thereby to identify drugs that will correct this or that uh, way of organizing things. But there's more than that to say. One of the things that's been learned in the past uh, this really just in 10 years, is how the DNA and the genes within the DNA actually control the process by which an embryo turns into an adult. Some people say the problem of development, as it's called, has been solved. What they mean is if you want to ask a particular problem, like why does a fruit fly have just one pair of wings? You can answer the question by specifying genes that produce protein chemicals that themselves regulate other genes. All they, they all have these funny initials I mentioned. And so you can say the process is understood, but you don't know, and won't know for a long time, exactly how these specified proteins and these specified genes do their job. And that process of understanding that is going to take not just decades, but centuries. I want to come to a close. I've talked too long. I want to go back to another question that Aristotle asked. He had the wit to recognize that there was an entity called mind, which is different from the brain. 
Aristotle asked, where is the mind? And his answer, there were several different answers, but one of them was, well, it's partly in the head, and it's partly in the heart, and it's partly in the blood. And of course, we know that was wrong. The mind is in the brain, but we don't know how it arises. At the beginning of this century, people set out to answer that question, to understand the mind. And the past century has seen some of the most remarkable laboratory work that could have been imagined in understanding how nerve cells function. And the lessons that have been learned are quite interesting. And they don't add up at all to an understanding of how the mind works. If you think of it, it's quite simple. Why do animals have brains? Well, they are distinguished from other creatures, trees, for example, by being able to move about. They can walk or run or swim, fly. In that role, they have to be able to avoid obstacles, which means that they have to be looking out and telling their legs, uh, stop, go more slowly, because you're otherwise going to hit an obstacle or if they're an owl, they have to be able to coordinate their flight in such a way that they will catch that mouse, even though the mouse happens to be running past through the undergrass. And th that requires calculation of a kind. So what the brain does for an animal is to act as a kind of post office between its senses, its eyes, its ears, its nose, its touch, and its means of locomotion, whatever that may be. Every animal needs one. Trees don't. This simple post office function requires a little bit more than I've said. If you're a snake, should we say, and you want to get back to your nest, and you've been for a swim in the river, you want to get back to your nest, not some other snakes. So you need actually to be able to remember something. You need to be able also to recall that memory. And people are trying very hard to understand the mechanism of memory in the brain. And they have, uh, to my understanding, so far failed to produce a clear answer. And even an answer to that will not be an answer to the question of how does the mind work. That's a different order of difficulty, which I can illustrate this way. People say consciousness is the real goal. That's what neuroscience is all about. It is, to some extent. But there's more, more than that to say. We differ from the great apes, from whom we uh, separated four and a half million years ago, by being able to walk upright and by being able to talk. And, as far as we know, by being conscious. What the fossil record shows about people is that they have evolved fairly quickly to, at a time when the great apes, the chimpanzees, the orangutans, the gorillas, baboons, have hardly changed at all. So people are evolving very quickly. And one of the things we evolved was being able to stand upright, bipedalism as it's called, and the other was the language faculty. 
Now, by using genetic information, it's possible to tell, guess, at how people diverge from um, others at different times in human evolution. There's a curious problem that much of human evolution, there seem to have been several different species living at the same time, called various names like Homo erectus, Homo robustus, and so on. But uh, the bare bones of it are that about two million years ago, the founders of the modern human lineage began. It's of huge importance, it seems to me, to know when language evolved, because then it'll be possible to understand the fossil record better. But the fossil record now is luckily not the scraps of information, the bits of old bone lying in some East African desert. The fossil record now includes the genes as well. And uh, genetic analysis can tell you a lot. It's the basis, for example, for the belief, yet to be tested stringently, uh, that a modern European man came out of Africa about 200,000 years ago. Pin that down, of course, will in itself be hugely important. But the language that our brains still have the faculty for using uh, is something special. It raises all kinds of logical problems which people like Chomsky, the linguist, have struggled with. How, how, we, how do you understand sentences without verbs? How do you understand? How do you represent in your head uh, the, the image of tent or hay? Is it by a, uh, a visual memory? Is it by some code for the word, as in a lexicon? We don't know. It'll take a long time to find out, but one thing is plain, that there on the left-hand side of the brain, in right-handed people, is a structure called the language center. It's quite big, about the size of half a grapefruit in an adult. It is where uh, words, verbal images are processed. It matters a great deal, at least in this sense, that there's some evidence that the reason why people have this crippling psychiatric disease called schizophrenia is because, unlike normal people, they have a language center on the left and a similar one on the right. Is it possible? This is why so much of the apparent defect in schizophrenia is uh, verbal in character. We don't know. But when we do know, we should be sure of one thing. It'll be possible more easily to deal with schizophrenia. So this is a whole area where a year's outstanding, uh, centuries outstanding research in trying to unravel the mechanism of the brain has brought us no nearer, in my opinion, to understanding how mind fits into that concept. I think I have time to make one further point. Some years ago, I acquired the reputation of being against the environment. The reason was I'd written a book called The Doomsday Syndrome, published in 1971, which was an attack on uh, people who said we're about to die of 
food shortages. We're about to be polluted uh, to death. Uh, we're about to run out of water. The earth will uh, be no longer be fertile and so on. I stand by what I said in the book, with one exception. Then there was no real evidence that global warming was a threat to our survival. I believe it is now. And I believe, sadly, that the mechanism that's being set up to try and deal with this, with the complicated Rio Treaty on uh, a convention, really, international convention on the uh, safeguarding of climate change, I believe that that uh, is a wrong-headed enterprise because it doesn't take enough account of the way in which scientific opinion changes from time to time and doesn't take enough account for the inevitable uncertainty of scientific conclusions. Nothing is ever finally certain. That's a contentious issue, but I'd like to mention three other threats to our survival that may mean that we may not have the time to carry out this agenda I've been talking about, understanding where the universe came from, where matter comes from, how it all fits together, how the mind fits into the brain, and so on. First of all, there's a problem about infection. We all know about AIDS, recently sprung to life. We all know about the recent threat from these versions of E. coli uh, that uh, appear to be more virulent than other things. We read about the resurgence of tuberculosis. We read about the resurgence of malaria. But this is only the beginning. The reason for all these newly virulent organisms, microorganisms, is that we're giving them such a hard time. It's now harder for bacteria to make a mess of a person's life by infection because the doctors will come along with antibiotics and other remedies. It's going to be hard for the bacteria to survive. And they do what creatures have done all through evolution. They adapt. Natural selection, selection makes them into fitter organisms, and they um, do their damage. We're better off, of course, because people have lived, whereas previously they would have died. But the bacteria we have to deal with are more virulent. And this is not something that we can forget about. It's something that's going to carry on and get worse. And so we need to be prepared, and we need to do what was done with AIDS, work out the mechanism of these diseases to develop vaccines for them, find drugs against them, and so on. It can be done. It's a huge effort. There's no way in which the invention of antibiotics can uh, be a guarantee of our safety against infection. For what it's worth, there's increasing evidence that the infection of one organism by viruses or bacteria from other organisms has been one of the chief mechanisms for transferring genetic material from one place to another in the course of not just human, but all evolution. So these are powerful mechanisms that have been with us all the time. We have to have public health services that can look after us. 
we have to worry also about one of the consequences of um, the reason why we rather than dinosaurs are now the most conspicuous creatures on the surface of the earth. The reason, of course, is that 64 million years ago, there was a huge impact of an asteroid on the surface of the earth, and the dinosaurs were killed off, not physically by the explosion of the asteroid, but by the way in which um, dust cut off the sun for long enough to starve the vegetarian dinosaurs and the um, carnivore dinosaurs were then stuck with the problem of eating other dinosaurs. One way and another, uh, this might be thought of as a fanciful idea. But if we take the uh, integrity of the surface of the Earth and of our own species as one of our goals, then we have a problem. At what point do we start investing money in making a survey of potential impact asteroids? What do we do when we find them? There's a lot that can be done. Uh, one could, in principle, been worked out, uh, catch 90% of the objects that were likely to hit the Earth. And it's not the big impacts that matter, it's the small ones that can do a lot of damage too. In uh, central Siberia, there, there was in 1905, a huge explosion in the sky that's now known to have been an asteroid blowing up that devastated something like 250,000 square kilometers of central Siberia. All the trees were blown down and set on fire. No, nobody knows how many people were killed. There's in Arizona a lovely hole in the ground about one and a half kilometers across that uh, is where something like 50,000 years ago another asteroid hit the surface. And the explosion was the equivalent of about 10,000 Hiroshima-type bombs. And it's lucky, of course, it happened in a place that's virtually desert. Or perhaps it wasn't desert then. We're going to have, at some point, along the path, to worry about impacts like that and try and avoid them. And I'd like to leave you with one slightly chilling thought. I mentioned that the evolution of the human species seems to have been faster than that of the great apes. Their fossil record hasn't changed much. That of human beings has, and we know what evolution has done for us, walking upright and language. What if this rapid evolution of the human species is also a sign that we may be a perishable species. After all, the, uh, most of the species that can be found in the fossil record died out. They've gone long since, not simply because of the big extinction in the time of the dinosaurs, but simply because some species peter out. Maybe it's a change in the environment. Maybe it's something to do with their genetic makeup. I raise the question only, what would we do and what should we do if we discovered in the course of the next few centuries of research that there's something inherently unstable and perishable about the human genome, as it's called. I know. I would be more concerned to 
keep the human species going, even if it meant all kinds of interference with the way in which the genes work naturally. But other people might disagree. It would certainly be a crisis, the kind of crisis that would occupy the newspapers, not simply for days on end, but weeks on end. I would like to summarize what I've said. First of all, we keep on asking the old questions. But if you notice, we ask them more perceptively as the decades go by. That, in my opinion, is what constitutes progress. It's not new discoveries as such. It's asking questions more perceptively in the hope that you can get answers. Another feature of science now is that it has a huge task ahead of it. I've spelled out, I hope correctly, the problem in the cosmology, understanding matter, is there a theory of everything, and if so, what is it? Where life began, how life began? Is there life elsewhere, and what do we do about that? What are cells like, and how do we understand them, and who's going to build these computer models? And who's going to worry about the asteroids, and the infections, and all those things? The huge questions, they ought to be addressed. My own guess is that we grossly underestimate the scale of effort that will be needed in the years ahead to watch out for our safety on the surface of the Earth. There's that old concept, spaceship Earth, very fashionable when I wrote my book, The Doomsday Syndrome. People don't often realize that the idea was coined by Adlai Stevenson, who you may remember after he, was, uh, he failed to get the Democratic nomination in 1960, uh, was appointed by Kennedy, the ambassador, the US ambassador to the United States. And he was stuck with making a speech about environmental problems. And he said, uh, in, a, in, a, in a passage I one quote in full. He talked about traveling in a small sp spaceship to a destination that was unknown. And he talked about the need for care and custody, even love, he said, for this planet. My belief is that it needs more than just that. It needs more effort to understand all the problems I've been talking about, because that's the only way that we shall be smart and able to survive. But more than that, of course, when it comes to asking what will science be like a century from now, I can tell you only 
of the fields of science where more needs to be known now. What I can't tell you is what kinds of science will be prompted by the questions we aren't yet smart enough to ask. And that's where the excitement will really come. Thank you. Thank you very much, but I'd happily answer any questions. If, if the organizers say there's time, and if anyone has any questions. Thank you. Can I ask you that, are we approaching the end of scientific practical investigation? Uh, are we approaching the end of, or the limits of scientific practical investigation into particle physics? And will the solution be purely mathematical in the future in respect to things like string theory? Um, as an ex-theoretical physicist, I believe there are limits to what mathematics can do for you. If I'd had more time, I'd have talked about the way in which mathematics itself has been, um, as it were, given pause in the past 40 or 50 years by people like Goodell and Turing and so on. But what I can say to that is that even if governments will not build ever more expensive particle accelerating machines so that people can do that kind of experiment, plenty of other places it can be done. Neutron stars are essentially laboratories in which these questions can be studied. Fascinating objects anyway. Black holes are similar uh, objects. I think that if particle physics is hamstrung by lack of money, it'll have to take to the skies and do it that way. I'm supposed to look for hands that may be in the air. Uh, it's a very complicated question, of course, and I realized I was trailing my coat. And uh, let me say this. Uh, I agree that there have to be restrictions on the amount of carbon dioxide in particular that go into the atmosphere. I think it's going to be very hard to do it by the quota system that people seem now to be devising. There's a crucial meeting in Kyoto later this year where... Uh, they're likely to agree on specific quotas for the coming decade. And I believe the quotas are likely to be wrongly fixed. For one thing, uh, the predictions of global warming so far uh, are based on computer models. I'm not against computer models, as you will recognize from what I said about the way in which biology is going to be driven to modeling any day now. But it's possible also to measure uh, the temperature on the surface of the Earth, which can be done by satellites. And the measurements that have been made by satellites give a rate of global warming, which is a half that predicted by the computer models. You'd expect 
the error to be in that direction because the computer models can't take account of every possible feedback, every possible way in which um, the if effect you predict in on page one then has to be qualified by uh, the uh, slight abatement of that effect you find on page two. Uh, indeed, uh, one of the obvious defects of the computer models is that they can't deal with clouds. And clouds obviously have a big effect on global warming. They reflect sunlight, but they also keep warm the earth beneath them. And um, so it's a complicated question. Real clouds can't yet be dealt with. So my view is that the global warming business needs to be based on um, measurement rather than on computer modeling, even though I give um, uh, all kinds of plaudits to the people who've devised these very clever computer models and also to the people who've advocated their use in this context. I should also say that I'm deeply suspicious of the way in which the organizations, the scientific organizations set up to look into global warming and to give advice to governments have been exceedingly resistant to criticism uh, either by people within their own profession or outside. Technical criticism, I mean. Uh, I feel a terrible onus to ask um, a sensible and relevant question here in view of what you've been saying. Um, I've heard it said that James Lovelock and his uh, Gaia hypothesis will be regarded in 50 years in the same light as Charles Darwin and his theories of evolution. Would you like to comment? Um, uh, just so that everyone knows who James Lovelock is, he's a British scientist who um, remarked on the way in which uh, over the history of the Earth there's always been a fairly close correspondence between the external environment of the Earth that is the sun, sun coming in, the way in which the atmosphere is constructed, and the needs of the organisms living on the surface of the Earth. And um, uh, Lovelock called this the Gaia hypothesis, and uh, Gaia is something to do with God of the Earth, or goodness knows what, in some Indian language, no doubt. And um, uh, this is really the origin of that concept, planet Earth, in a way, the personification of the human race in this, uh, in the surface of the planet. Now, Lovelock is a nice guy and a very able and ingenious guy. And he has, on many occasions, when he's been under pressure uh, from critics, he's said, look, uh, let me point to this curious way in which um, the seas generate a great deal of methyl sulfate, which is uh, then able to get into the atmosphere and is able to do just what one needs of the atmosphere to, uh, to, to make it a bit cooler, to pr produce lots of sulfate uh, aerosol in the atmosphere. He's done incredible things like that. But he says, um, uh, the simple version of the Gaia hypothesis is, look, don't worry, uh, the Earth will adjust to uh, suit uh, the creatures living on the surface. If, if they need more carbon dioxide or less carbon dioxide, they'll produce more or less carbon dioxide and so on. The trouble is it can't be true. It can't be true in the extreme. 
It can only be true within limits, and Lovelock himself has not been able to define what those limits are, and in my opinion, anyway, um, uh, it's misguided. Either we're going to be okay, in which case we ought to be able to produce grounds for believing that the next, shall we say, 200 years will be all right, or alternatively, we're not going to be okay, um, in which case, whether or not Lovelock uh, suggests that we should um, uh, not worry, um, we won't be okay. So my, my view really is that it's a very entertaining um, comment, uh, which at the beginning was in, uh, instructive and stimulating of a lot of um, interesting work. It's, it's been going now for 25 years. During my time at Nature, we published a great deal of Lovelock's material. I've got nothing against him, but I think it's very unlikely that he will be in the category of Darwin. Do you think, um, I know you were associated with a great um, change in the science school curricula some 30 years ago. Do you think you, we are now turning out young men and women that will become part of society and will in future be able to make intelligent decisions about what we might be doing vis-a-vis -vis scientific research and the developments that might be happening around us? has been illustrated, as it were, by your magnificent talk, giving us the issues that we should be contemplating. I'm talking about, do you think we have a scientifically literate society? Uh, the simple answer is no. Very difficult question. It is true I was um, the coordinator of the Nuffield Science Teaching Project for a couple of years before I went to nature. Um, I, d I do think the problem of Training scientists is a twofold problem. First of all, uh, a good grounding. In my opinion, the good grounding doesn't have to be science and technology, uh, as now taught in schools. I think it is sufficient to give people a sense of excitement about science, to let them feel it's a respectable profession to give them some sense too from time to time that it's a reasonably well-paid profession, which is not the sort of impression one gets in this country or has done.